there's a there's a joke that goes like this. It's an old one, but it's never stopped me before. Um, uh, so there's a, a man walking along a clifftop path when he suddenly uh, slips and falls. And as he slides down the face of the cliff, he grabs onto a, a tree branch uh, just sticking out from the cliff. He breathes a sigh of relief, but realises uh, that there's no way up and no way down. Uh, and as a good believer, he therefore utters a short prayer. Lord, if you're there, please come and help me. Amen. Just then he hears a voice and a man on the cliff top letting down a rope uh, to him to grab onto. Grab onto this, he says. But our friend holding onto the branch says, no, 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 thank you, I don't need it. The Lord is coming to help me. Just at that moment, an RNLI lifeboat comes out and begins to send lifeboatmen up the cliff. No thanks, our friend replies, the Lord is coming to help me. Holding onto the branch ever tighter, he hears a helicopter overhead and a man coming down with a winch and a life belt. No, no, no thanks, our friend replies, the Lord is coming to help me. Eventually he loses his grip and goes to meet his maker. And as he greets St. Peter, he says these words, I have to say I'm a little disappointed. I prayed to the Lord to help me, but he didn't. What more did you want, said St. Peter? He sent you a walker with a rope, a lifeboat and a helicopter. What more do you want? Now, I suspect you saw the punchline coming from about the second sentence, but it's a good story because it helps us think about this question. How does God help us? How does he provide for us? How might we see him at work in our daily lives? And those are questions for the believer and the seeker alike. If you're a believer today, I'm sure you've asked the question over the years, how is God at work in this or this, that situation that seems very unpromising? How can I really know that he is helping and providing for me? And if you're here this morning just seeking truth and seeking answers, I'm sure you want some evidence that God is actually at work, active in the world today. What proof is there that God is at work in the world that he has made? Well, those are the questions that we're going to be exploring together as we look at this passage that Heidi just read for us from Exodus chapter 18. Just to recap why we're looking at this passage, we're uh, going through our the second half of the book of Exodus this term, uh, the second book of the Bible, the purple patch of, of the revelation of God, and we're doing it with the aim of knowing God better, of expanding our vision of him and how he works. That's our overall aim. And the big story of the book of Exodus is the escape from Egypt of the Israelites, the people of God from Pharaoh's clutches. And uh, earlier this term, we took up the story as Moses and Miriam sang of the great victory that God had won for them uh, in parting the Red Sea, enabling the people to pass through on dry land. And since then, we've seen how God gave manna and quail and water in the desert. And last week, we saw how Moses and Joshua defeated the Amalekites, and Moses had his hands lifted up by Aaron and Hur. But now we come to a really interesting passage uh, where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, uh, enters stage right and gives Moses advice, advice on how to run things. Now, it's a story that we can read in a number of different ways. We can read it as good, practical wisdom about the importance of delegation in leadership. Nothing wrong with that. Jethro gives management consultants a good name. 
they need. Um, um, it can be interpreted also as a reminder of the value in helping lots of people be involved in God's mission. It's certainly that as well. And with life to the full before us next year, telling our story going on at the moment, that's a pretty important lesson as well. But I'm not sure either of those messages really get to the heart of what this passage is about. Because if you put this passage in the overall context of what we've been looking at in the book of Exodus, I think the theme is much more one of provision, one of God providing for his people. If you think about it, God provided for Moses by giving manna and quail and water. He provided Moses with people to lift up his hands when his arms were tired from holding up the staff of God. And I think if we look carefully this morning, we're going to see how Jethro is God's provision for Moses at a time of real need. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three steps, I think, of how God provides for Moses in this story. And then look at how he provides for us in our daily lives, but also in the most wonderful way possible. So perhaps you'd have your Bibles open at page 76. Uh, on uh, In book Exodus chapter 18, there's a batting order for us to follow where you can uh, look at where we're going. So there are three steps I want us to notice in God's provision for Moses. Okay, first of all, there's Moses' real need. Verses 13 to 16 describe the scene. Moses, as the overall leader, is, is acting as judge, and therefore he's required to give instructions and resolve disputes for all the people of God. And the reason why is he's the one who's met with God back at the burning bush, and so he is best placed to give good counsel to those who come to him. If you look with me at verse 16, this is what Moses says, whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. That's his role. But it's not going well. These conversations, they're taking up all of Moses' time from dawn till dusk, and the Israelites are standing in a queue. Actually, they're not standing in the queue because they're not British. Uh, they're, they're kind of huddling around, like the experience I had at a German baker's, where they're kind of thronging around trying to get Moses' attention. And so everyone is ending up pretty frustrated. doesn't actually say it in the text, but from Jethro's comments later on, it seems that pretty much everyone is at the end of their tether. And the situation is unsustainable. Now, listen, perhaps you've been in this situation at work or elsewhere. You just think, this cannot carry on. There is so much being demanded of me, my team is so unhappy, this just is unsustainable. That's the situation Moses is in, red zone. The second thing is to notice the unexpected help in Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. There are three reasons why Jethro is a really unlikely candidate to come and help Moses. Reason number one is he's ethnically different. We originally met Jethro back in chapter 2 of Exodus when Moses fled from Egypt after he'd murdered a fellow Israelite and settled in Midian, which was the other side of the Red Sea. Now, the Midianites were not Israelites. They, they were descendants of Abraham, but not in the line of Joseph and the people who'd settled in Egypt all those hundreds of years before. So, for example, Jethro almost certainly was not circumcised. And that was the mark of being an Israelite. This guy was ethnically different to Moses. Secondly, he was physically absent. He was hundreds of miles away. He wasn't on the scene. And with travelling in those days, 
being a very demanding activity, almost as difficult as the Jubilee line in rush hour, it was very unlikely that he was going to come and help his son-in-law, who was so far away. The third reason why he was unlikely was he was spiritually distant. He's described in verse 1 as a priest of Midian, so he belonged to a different religion to that of the Israelites. He was not a worshipper of Yahweh, who had revealed himself to Moses. So he's a very unlikely candidate to be the help for Moses. But the reality is he's on a journey in more than one sense. Physically, he's travelled to see Moses in the desert after having heard, presumably through his daughter Zipporah, who was Moses' wife, who Moses had sent back to her father in order to be safe. Presumably he'd heard through her that God had been doing great things through Moses. But he's also on a journey spiritually, because we read in verses 9 to 12 that he rejoices in God when he hears all that God has done. says in verse 11, I know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So Jethro is not a a clear-cut faith, but he's getting there. And he gives uh, advice to Moses on the basis that God will be at work in the process. But the point is that Jethro is a very unlikely candidate to be Moses' rescuer out of this difficult plot. The third thing I want us to notice is the necessary humility that Moses has to show. Just imagine the scene. Let's consider how this conversation between Jethro, his father-in-law, and Moses could have gone, yeah? Moses is dog-tired through giving advice all day. His father-in-law turns up and tells him everything he's doing wrong. Did you ever see Harry Enfield and that character? You don't want to do it like this, you want to do it like that. That's what Jethro is. And this, I think we would have understood it if Moses had blown his lid. You know, with apologies to Balafalti. You think you do better, can you? Well, just remember, I've been the one who's helped these people through thick and thin. It was me who led them out of Egypt. Me who helped them cross the Red Sea. Me who sorted out the food and drink. Me who held up the staff so the Amalekites would be defeated. So don't tell me how to run this show. I'm imagining this. I've never had that sort of conversation Well, not quite. Um, But Moses doesn't take this route. From the very outset, he shows real humility to his father-in-law. He bows to him and shows him all the deference due to an elder. And then look with me at verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Just think of the humility that took to recognize that this outsider knew better than he did, that his own judgment was not infallible, and that God was indeed at work through this very unlikely man. That humility is really striking. And the result is a good one. It works out well, and Moses and the people, they're all much happier. We're not told exactly, but in verses 25 to 26, we can safely assume uh, everything goes smoothly. When it says in verse 27, by the way, that Moses sent his father and law on his way, that's a poor translation. It actually basically means he let him go sort of uh, enabled him, let him go back to his, his own home that he had to look after. So that's the story, I hope you see, therefore, of God providing for Moses at a point of real need in a very unlikely way, but requiring a necessary humility on Moses' part. And it's a great story. It actually finds echoes through other stories in the Old Testament. God helping his people in unexpected ways. 
Uh, For Joshua, there's the unlikely figure of the prostitute Rahab, who helps the people of God. For Naomi, there's the unlikely figure of Ruth, who wasn't an Israelite, and yet was God's provision for her. Neither of them were Israelites, but God provided through them. But the question, how does this story of God's provision for Moses speak to our lives today? I think it can help us do two things. First of all, to see God's provision for us in daily life. And secondly, to see God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. In daily life first. I think this story reminds us that God can provide for us in unexpected ways, but we need to be humble enough to recognize it when it comes. Let me give you an example. It can be in all sorts of ways, this provision. It could be giving a real piece of wisdom at a time of need. I remember once doing some 360-degree feedback in this church. I had to get some feedback from someone outside church community. And this guy didn't just fill in a form, as you were meant to be part of the 360 feedback. He actually gave me, rang me up on the phone, gave me good advice. And actually, it was advice I really needed to hear at that time. And I believe that was God providing for me at that moment. Uh, But I needed to be humble enough to recognize this guy had wisdom I needed to hear and that I had to choose that path. I recognized God was in it. Or that provision, it can be more practical. It's always really encouraging when I hear about people who've had meals ministry after a new baby or an illness or or some other difficulty. And often these meals, they say, they're delivered by people they, they barely know but they recognize God's provision in the hand of those person in a very unexpected way. Simon and Kath Winchcom, our mission partners in the Middle East, were telling me back in the summer when they were here how often they received financial provision when they most needed it, and sometimes from quite unexpected places. Sometimes they didn't even know. And I was actually had an email from them this week talking about the way in which Ona, their daughter, was provided for in terms of a friendship, in a completely miraculous way, completely from left field. But they recognized God's hand in that. And I think part of growing in Christian faith is learning to see God's provision wherever it comes. Yes, in the expected ways, but the unexpected ways too. Because you see, the man in our joke at the beginning was wrong. God doesn't provide with a big finger from the sky. He provides in people. And those people might be sometimes very surprising. But God can work through them. So I wonder, I guess, if we're able to see God's provision in our lives. Are there unexpected ways in which God has provided for us? Ways that may have passed us by. Today may be a time of looking back with thankfulness. But also looking forward with attentiveness for how is God going to provide and recognize that we'll need to be humble enough to receive it when it comes. But I don't think this story is just about God providing for us in our daily lives. I don't think we can leave the application there because if we see this story of God's provision for Moses simply as a, a lesson for daily living, we're going to be missing out on an awful lot. Because I think we've already seen time and again in our teaching on Exodus that the story of Exodus is not only a story on its own, but it's also a story that points forward to a greater story, a greater provision 
that God has made. If you like, all the accounts in Exodus point forward to Jesus Christ. If you like, they're, they're part of the kind of building the foundations on which the main event of the Bible is built, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when we looked at the way uh, God provided manna for heaven, the way Jesus himself told that story about himself? He said, that was about me. I am God's manna. Or or the way in which uh, Joshua and, uh, sorry, the way in which Aaron and Hur lifted up Moses' hands. And we saw the way in which that pictured the way that Jesus' hands were lifted up. Well, I think if we look at this story and say, how does this story point forward to Jesus? I think those three things that we identified, they all point forward to our story of Jesus Christ. Let's just track them again, shall we? First of all, let's think about our real need. You see, Moses' need was a practical one with presumably an emotional element thrown in. Uh, and, And this morning, we might have all sorts of needs pressing in on us at the moment. But actually, deep down, we all have the same need. We all have the same need. In fact, the Bible says that for actually for all our differences between human beings, we are all in the same boat. We all have a problem. And that's this. On our own, we have put things in the centre of our lives where only God belongs. You see, we were made for a relationship with God. For us to put him at the centre, that's the reason we were made. And God gave us good things to enjoy, but those things only make sense when they are uh, enjoyed in relationship to him and when he is at the centre. But all of us, to one degree or another, have taken those good things made by God and put them in the centre where God belongs. We have taken good things and made them into ultimate things. Now, we're very, very good at seeing that in other people. We're very good at seeing the way in which the person who's made work and career their God, but all their relationships have suffered. The person who's made their home and expanding it or improving it their God, but is never, ever satisfied. The person who's made money their God, but never has enough. The person who's made sport their God, but their team never loves them back. The person who has made sexual pleasure their God but feels lonelier than ever. Oh, we can see it in others. But we need to see it in ourselves. Because if we are honest, each one of us has pushed God to the side in the belief that something else is more worthy of our energy, our focus, and our desire. And that leaves us really lost. Because once those things have this God-like place in our lives, they have a power over us we don't recognize. But it means that however hard we try and turn back to God, we can't. They have a gravitational pull away from God that we always underestimate. We need someone from outside to come and help us, to rescue us. And that's, you see, why we all have the same basic need. We all need a saviour. We all need a rescuer, just like that man on the cliff that day. We need somebody to come and rescue us from the place we're in. Our same basic need. But secondly, let's think about our unexpected help. 
Because hundreds of years after Moses, the people of God knew they needed a saviour. They knew that God wasn't centre stage among his people as he should be. But the people of that time, they were thinking of a very particular kind of saviour. A military warrior who would overthrow the Roman occupying forces and all would be well once more. So when a baby was born to a peasant girl, when a boy grew up in a two-horse town like Nazareth, when a man died in Roman execution, they didn't really notice. But when that man rose from the dead three days later, many saw that God's Saviour had come in a very unexpected way. Now, we're not expecting a Saviour in the shape of a military warrior today. That's the last thing we need. If a Saviour were to be devised for our world today, he would be a mixture of a celebrity, a life coach and a fitness expert. Someone who could help us squeeze more out of our lives, get more out of them and lose weight while we do it. So you see, Jesus is as unexpected a help, as unexpected a saviour, today as he was then. But a saviour is who he is. Because the message of the Bible is that Jesus came not really to give us advice, though his words are worth listening to. Not really to show us how to live, although his was the best life ever lived. But to bring us back to God once and for all. That is why Jesus went to the cross and stretched out his hands to take upon himself the power of sin that has so stained our world and broken our lives. So that all who look to Jesus find that those good things do not need to be ultimate things. And that a different sort of gravitational pull exists. A pull towards the God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. You see, if you give it a moment's thought... The fact that this thing here, this cross, it's the most unexpected way in which God could help his people. A death, a Roman death, on an unknown hill. And yet that is how God came to help his people. For it was the way, the only way, in which God could save his people and bring him back to him. Third, let's think about the necessary humility. We saw that Moses had to show humility in spades as he responded to Jethro's help. What about us? How do we respond to the rescue that is offered to us on the cross? I think a fairly common response to say thanks, but no thanks. In my experience, people say this for one of two reasons. Either they say they don't have a need to get right with God, or they think they can do it on their own. Just be a little bit better every day and and God will like me. Neither of those are a root of humility. Both are proud in their own way. The one because they think that God doesn't exist and they're their own boss. And the other because they think they can get right with God on their own terms. But the way Jesus calls us to is to that necessary humility. A recognition that we are not all right as we are, but that God somebody from outside us has given us the most wonderful way in which we can come back to him. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we can receive it. That's a path that has been chosen, that path of humility has been chosen by kings and paupers for the last 2,000 years. Yet I wonder if it's ever been harder than in our world today that says you're okay as you are and that being humble is a mug's game. And yet humility 
is the path to receive what we really need. So let me leave us with some questions this morning. We've seen this story of Jethro is a wonderful account of God's provision in an unexpected way. And I've encouraged us to be more sensitive to God's provision for us in our daily lives, in unexpected ways, people who come to a stage left and are actually the hand of God. But above all, I hope this story has helped us realise afresh, or, or perhaps for the first time, the wonderful, unexpected provision God has made for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just track those three things again. Do we see our real need? The need that you and I share for a saviour. Not for good advice, not for management consultancy, for a saviour. The wonderful way. Have we seen the way in which we've made good things into ultimate things? And shut out the one for whom you and I were made. Do we see our real need, which is for a saviour? Secondly, Will we recognise the unexpected and yet wonderful provision of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross? That from that unpromising birth, from that unimportant town, and through that unspeakable cross, God was making a way for sin to be dealt with once and for all, and to bring us back to him. And thirdly, will we show the necessary humility to receive what we really need, not as something as we've earned, but something as we don't deserve. That we might say with the old hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling.